0: Welcome to Daughters of Lorraine, a podcast from your friendly neighborhood black feminists exploring the legacies and future of black theater. We are your hosts, Leticia Ridley and Jordan Ely.
1: On this podcast, we will discuss black theater history. We'll have interviews with black theater artists and practitioners, and we'll discuss plays by black playwrights that have our minds buzzing. You don't want to miss this. Stay tuned. Fairview by Jackie Sibley's Drury premiered at Soho Rep in New York City to astounding critical and commercial acclaim. On April 15th, 2019, Fairview was announced as the winner of the 2019 Pulitzer Prize for Drama. This honor made her only the third Black woman in the award's 102-year history to receive this honor for dramatic literature. Today's episode is dedicated to this provocative and brave piece of theater, where we will discuss Fairview's critical interventions in the American theater and our experiences watching Willie Mamet Theater Company's production of it.
0: The play begins as any mom-on-the-couch play would. However, slowly but surely, Fairview unravels in an unexpected way, becoming a courageous meditation on race, power, and power. And surveillance. Seen the production at Woolly Mammoth Theater in
1: DC. That's right. Mm-hmm.
0: This is, we've seen it twice. Yeah. We've seen exactly. the first one at an IDR, which is a dress rehearsal, invited dress. And then we've seen the second one, closing weekend, Sunday matinee. We love a matinee.
1: Mm hmm. Yeah, that's so weird. I didn't even think about that. We're, like, one of the first audiences to experience it, and then we're one of the last audiences to experience it.
0: Yeah, and, you know, probably too many things that we're actually not probably going to get to today, but we're going to try to touch on based on many things as possible. So let's talk about a little bit, let's go act by act, right? Yeah. So the play is three acts, Mm -hmm. but there's no intermission. It runs, what, what do you say about, like? I would say it's, like, a
1: tight... 75 to 80 minutes three acts condensed into that short of time it was it's amazing
0: yeah it does it's it's a really well written script like Mm -hmm. very tight script and I didn't read the script but you read the script and I felt like as I was sitting in the theater that this was a well-paced thought out piece of theater that I was seeing and I felt like I never felt like whoo checking my watch Mm -hmm. Oh, when when are we going to leave? It's it's that captivating.
1: Yeah, and I think even if you don't necessarily agree with the actions of the play, I think that that still stands of like it is captivating. So I guess this is the part where we should tell our listeners: if you haven't seen
0: the play, if you haven't read the play, if you are planning to see the play and are reading the play and just want to experience for a first time, this is probably not the episode for you to listen to. Mm -hmm. And you might want to catch another one of our episodes. We hope you come back. Um, (laughs) But you know, we want to let you know now this, you might want to tap out sis and Mm -hmm. um, listen to something else because (laughs) we will probably definitely be talking about the content of the play.
1: Yeah. I guess spoiler alert. (laughs) Spoiler alert. It feels so weird to say that because this is a spoiler sound like really sort of defangs everything that happens with the play.
0: Yeah. And I I feel like even if you know what happens in the play, I feel like this play has to be experienced. Mm -hmm. I feel like there's just something about the play being experienced while you're in the theater and or reading it. Like, I think I think there's an element. you You don't get the full picture until you're in that position. That's right. Let's start with Act One. So, okay. Act One.
1: Yeah, so, Act One, it's pretty much the description of the play that I encountered online, which is that, so we have a Black family who is getting ready for grandma's 70th, Birthday, and everything keeps going wrong. You know, the the record player starts skipping, and then the the root vegetables aren't ready, or the the sister, crazy sister comes in and she's on one today, you know, and mm-hmm. so the play sort of starts off with this like raisin in the sun kind of black family drama or even sitcom mm-hmm, appeal. Mm-hmm. Which I think is really what they're trying to go for. There. Yeah, definitely. We
0: walk into the theater, and before anybody says a word, anybody get on stage, any lights up, any of that, we're indoctrinated into the space via the best black sitcom. I mean, like a good times theme song. That's so Raven sister, sister, sister like proud family, proud family, like all the jams. You know, we were in the theater getting our lives. <laughs>
1: Back to Act 1. Right. I had already read the script, so when I saw it, I was... I already knew it was going to happen, but when I was first reading the script, there is... The the—the epigraph of the play is from the black scholar Friends Fanon's book Black Skin, White Masks, and the epigraph is Look a Negro. If you're unfamiliar with Fanon's work, it's often cited and often read book where Franz Fanon is talking about the conditions of colonized people, specifically looking at Black folks. His analogy of look a Negro is about how his personal experience with being held into this position of being denigrated for his race only by just looking at him. And so I found it very interesting because then Drury, the very first stage directions of the play, like following this epigraph, is lights up on a Negro. And then we see Beverly, the uh, mother of the family. Mm-hmm. Not quite the matriarch because the, the grandma's still around, but the the uh, mother of this family getting ready for, for Beverly's dinner. So that's how I was sort of, fra- like everything was framed, how I was ushered into the play. Um, but even still, I didn't expect it to to go the way it did, but there's no sort of framing. It's like, here's Fanon, here's lights up on a Negro. Oh, and here's just a family drama. You don't get
0: that look a Negro in in the theater when you're watching it, right? You just see Beverly, the mother, come out. You kind of warned me, you were like, Girl, just wait till you see this play. And, <laughs> and I know, did, and I was like, okay, okay, whatever. So I, w- I, when I first seen the first act, I was like, oh, this is Raisin in the Sun, a nice mm-hmm. black family drama. Which Raisin in the Sun is Leticia's favorite play. It is my favorite play. Fight <laughs> me! I won't hear no.
1: Oh, my noise! Goodness.
0: It is the best. Lorena no one's going to fight you. It. Look. This podcast is called Daughters of a Lorraine for a reason. Let's just say that. (laughs) But I didn't have that sort of same framing going into the theater. So when you had told me that and I was like, what? This seems like a family drama. I'm having a good time. I'm laughing. There's nothing out of the ordinary at this point in the play. The family is really just any typical family family regardless of racial
1: signifiers, I would mm-hmm. say. Like like a typical black middle class family. I yes. think that's important. Is is this is not representing all black families everywhere. This is representing a particular type of black middle class. And I think there's a way that people would will overlook the first act. It
0: seems so normalized what's happening that we'll be like, okay, let's get to the good stuff in Act Two and Act Three, where things really just start shifting. And I would caution us to pause on act one because I think it serves a dramaturgical function within the play to actually seduce us as an audience to sit back, relax. It's so important to what we experience later in the show that Drury is really setting up. This is how the family acts outside of a gaze or an interruption from other folks
1: right exactly and i think it also sets up important information about these characters like beverly is the sort of um high-strung housewife dalton is the he's the kind of happy-go-lucky dad and the aunt jasmine is this sort of like how do I describe it? I would say she's like the
0: fun-loving Yeah, that's With true. like no children, that you can talk about mm-hmm. your deep dark secrets that you can't
1: talk to your mom about. Which is exactly what Keisha does with her whole idea of, I may not want to go to college right away. Can you help me usher in that conversation with my mama? And yeah, you're right. Like Jasmine's sort of the foil. Like she's the fun-loving foil to Beverly's high-strung energy. Already, we're sort of brought into this world of this family who is just like they're normal. I mean, there's nothing sort of spectacularized about their experience of blackness. No one is, you know, going through all of the sort of things that people expect when they watch a black family drama. I mean, even if we're talking about something like Raisin, is that Raisin, though it is this sort of natural, world of this family and the Black domestic space. There is something very spectacularized about the fact of they want to move from this sort of dilapidated apartment to a, a house in the suburbs. And then Walter Lee gambles away all the money and now Beneatha can't go be a doctor. And Ruth is pregnant. Although it's presenting a sort of normal picture of Black life, it is a sort of meditation on the spectacularized like ways that they're experiencing quotidian experiences of blackness versus I feel like in the 90s what we got with a lot of these sitcoms was this sort of normalized American black family. Like you said not overlooking act one is really important because the break for Keisha happens there. you want to talk about that a little bit that break? Yeah so there's this part where Beverly and Jasmine and and Dalton even (laughs) join in on this dance where they're talking about Beverly and Jasmine's mother, how she would dress up in this white outfit with gold studs and a golden turban and do this dance on her birthday every year. And, and while the three adults are sort of enjoying each other's company and dancing and remembering this very, you know, funny moment, Keisha gets into the spotlight Where she talks about, like, I love my family, but there's something that's like quite missing. And that to me is like that first signal to the audiences, or at the time when I was reading it, that there's something, there's something different about this narrative. And I kept thinking about that when I was watching the play of like, wow like what is she signaling to? What does she feel? What is it that she does she feel someone watching her? So let's talk about the
0: audience factor because in act two that's when things get a little fishy and this notion of audience really becomes a central part of the play. So act two we have reset basically the play the action on stage that was in act one is repeated but this time we don't hear the actors speak instead there is like these voiceovers of these four disembodied figures answering the question
1: of if you could be any race what would it be I think the interesting thing that happens, which I believe is a directorial choice because I don't remember that being sort of explicitly part of the script, is that the, the sort of transition between act one and act two, there's like, it's completely a blackout on the audience. And then there's like a, Kind of like a storm sound and I, then like I a thought it was. I thought it was like um, like switching the channel to go
0: with the sitcom framing that it had before the play even That's started. True. Like, oh, we're changing the channel or like you have control or someone has has control over what they're watching or seeing or looking at.
1: That's true. But I guess if it's not apparent, I think my my bigger point of that is it's sort of signaling to like there's a rupture that happens. And even though it's simply changing a channel, which many of us do a lot, it still is this idea of like, I feel like it, it sort of gave a horror aesthetic to the, to the entire production, right? That it wasn't just changing the channel, it was like, there's something that shifts here. Yeah. Regardless of, you know, either changing the channel or
0: like this horror aesthetic is I think that what Drury is definitely trying to do is signal to the audience, like you said, that there's a shift that's about to happen. Drury mentions that she was reading Simone Brown's Dark Matters, Mm -hmm. but essentially looks at the condition of blackness, as a key site through which Surveillance is practiced, narrated, and resisted. So she was talking about how she was thinking about these notions of Surveillance.
1: That is so interesting to me, and maybe this is a, a podcast episode for a future um, episode. The idea of Black playwrights being so informed by like these largely theoretical works is something that I feel like is worth exploring at some point in the future. But anyways, I think that the idea of surveillance is something very interesting because we're led to believe that the the figures in the second act are white folks and that they are simply watching the episode like who are these people i think that's something that i've been questioning since i've both read and saw the play it's like who are these four white people why are they involved with this scene what are all these sort of ways of looking that that jury is contending with in fairview
0: yeah and i think when i'm trying to think of my experience of it initially i was like it seems it was a little like an orthodox to me originally watching it and watching like the same thing happen mm-hmm. and like having these voiceovers where they just seems like they're having conversations and not necessarily for me them watching didn't come until the moment where Beverly passes out, mm. and they said, "Oh, she's about to pass out. She's about to pass out." And then, like we understand that they've actually been watching this family the entire time. Mm-hmm. And what I think is so interesting about that is that they're still able to watch watch in anonymity. They are, and this is a directorial choice. Di- directorial choice is that their shadows on the wall. Like, there's no specificity to who they are. All we have is their voice in these shadows. Mm-hmm. Which I think is such a brilliant directorial choice. Mm-hmm. The use of, like, the shadows and, like, the staging mm-hmm. with um, the actual actors on stage with the shadows and how, at moments, it felt like they were responding to each other and that certain dialogue would sync up to the reactions of the actors on stage. I just thought, s- so smart. Adding such an, uh, like another element to the script.
1: Yeah, and you know, I want to give reverence to um, Stevie Walker-Webb, who was the director of this production, because that, it was directed brilliantly, I would say. And even when I, I remember remarking this to you when, I, when we saw the Invited Dress rehearsal of like how closely matched it was with the script. But then to take what is happening there and to even put his own spin on it was just absolutely, absolutely brilliant in in, in so many different ways. And I also was very interested in the way that the silhouettes were used. In, in certain moments when, when um, the black actor is staring Um, Like, you know, sort of juxtaposed with their silhouette in a like in a diagonal fashion or, you know, when a black actor is talking and the silhouette may be beside her. And then when it like gets so much bigger than her Mm -hmm. um, on on the background, just amazing. First of all, amazing work directorially and also um, projections wise. And, and set design. Who
0: did the set design?
1: Misha from
0: University of Maryland.
1: Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. Our stopping grounds. Absolutely. Um, amazing, amazing work from Misha, I would say. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, like,
0: surveillance, we definitely see themes of surveillance, mm-hmm. looking, gazing in the in the second act. I think this really brings us to the final act where
1: stuff hits the fan. So, act three. This is when the play really gets into another realm of, of the world, <laughs> and 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 this is kind of where most people are are um, are writing their think pieces, and 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 that's where Fairview gets its notoriety, I would say. So what happens in Act Three is that we have a convergence of what happens in act 1 and act 2. And so, we continue on with the black family that we've been following along with this entire play. But slowly but surely, the white characters from act 2 show up in in this in the black family sitcom. So for example, um Sue's, who is sort of the white progressive woman who loved mabel her her black nanny from back in the day appears as the grandmother and then we've we've heard about this brother Tyrone who who is Beverly and Jasmine's brother and we meet scare quotes Tyrone when a white man bursts in to let me clear my throat Wearing this ridiculously loud and tacky outfit, and comes into the house with a microphone and a fur coat, and says, "When I say hey, you say ho, oh, hey ho, etc. etc." And he also does that same sort of formulation with the N word. And so slowly, these characters show up in this black family to where um, they just cause utter upheaval and chaos to the black family. There is a point where there's a food fight among the white characters that then turns into violence against the black characters to the point where they're cowering while the white white characters are completely ruining the black home in their space and everything is just completely demolished and, and ruined. And then we get this last moment, which is the crux of the play. My favorite part of the play, yeah, for sure. Where Keisha, the teenage daughter, asks the white character of Suze she's like, "I want to ask you something, but I don't know what I want to ask." And she sort of tells the goes into this monologue about how essentially it's not right that she calls her grandma and that you know, things don't feel right and she wants to do something. Something has to be done. And sort of this, she then sort of collapses the fourth wall and she asks the people who identify as white and who are able-bodied to come onto the stage, to join her on the stage. to Not to join I, to, her on the stage, to switch places with her and her family. And so what we have is this Reversal, this switch that happens, where ideally in an ideal world, all the white folks in the audience would come up on the stage, and then there are only people of color left in the audience. So when we saw the invited dress rehearsal, it was definitely a different experience. Do you think, Leticia?
0: Yeah, I think I think it was. I think when we see it in the invited dress, again we're seeing it with theater folks. People of color, there's people of color there, but mm-hmm. white folks are still the majority. Yeah, And when that moment comes, one, there's a lot of hesitation in both moments. Mm-hmm. Besides our good sis, Lindsay R. Barr, immediately, once it's asked, puts her program down and comes all the way from the balcony on stage. But I digress. Mm-hmm. Um, the IDR folks hesitated a bit. And, you know, majority of the white folks get on stage, I would say, at the IDR. Maybe a couple of them are still trickled in between the audience. But to see the empty seats and to see the sort of different spaces and, like, how minoritized we are in the theater, mm-hmm. I think is such an interesting moment compared to the second time we see it, seeing it, where I felt like I didn't get the same space I did the first time because there were so many white people who... Yeah, decided not to go up for whatever reason, mm-hmm. um, where I felt like they were so infringing on the space that Drury was trying to create for us. Yeah. Um, us being people of color. And I, I think I believe I remarked to you that I was gleeful. I was yes. happy. I was happy the first time we did it. There was this moment of of happiness that like there was a space relief. Created, like relief yes. that was created for us in the theater in a way that I hadn't experienced before, right? I understood it was temporary. I mm-hmm. understood that after I went with the theater, I was going to be in the same position that I was when I walked in. Mm-hmm. But there was just something about that that moment of reversal that I really appreciated yeah. in the show.
1: Totally. And the second time that I saw the play, it was almost, I think both you and I sort of remarked that there was this fear, this fear we didn't know what was gonna really happen with people who were not theater artists, right? Seeing this play. It's like, would they would they do it? Would they go up? And also this that last monologue for those who may have not read it or or heard it, it's a pretty heartbreaking monologue. I mean it's 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 so well written and it's just completely devastating of a monologue. But in the second time we saw it white folks were laughing during the monologue i mean they were just laughing they just having a good time and it makes me wonder if the same effect happened Mm -hmm. that second Mm -hmm. time like i think the first time we saw it no one clapped at the end of the play yeah because
0: there's no there's no curtain call yeah the the family leaves and then the audience both people of color and white folks, they decide when they want to
1: leave the space. And so the first time no one clapped, we just, the people of color got up and walked out first, along with the um, actors, the black actors who left, and then the white folks followed. And it was a sort of somber moment, I would say, that we all just sort of wanted that to sink in, that this just happened, that we all experienced this. Versus the second time we saw it, People clapped for her and the speech. Yeah, yeah. And I think this is like the
0: controversial portion of the play, right? It's like, Mm -hmm. oh, you're asking me, white person, to do something? What Drury says about the particular moment is that it's a hopeful gesture, right? It's something that a a white audience member can do. It's something active and uncomfortable in this moment to create space for people of color in a space where they're often not given that space. They're always the one on view. They're Mm -hmm. always the one on display. In order for that type of Blackness to be reproduced, the white characters must enter into that space and then take on this sort of stereotypical
1: Blackness Mm -hmm. that they deem to be, like, fit. The thing that gets me about the ending every single time is, like, white people have to... is, is asking of its white audiences to invest in collectivity in the way that most white folks are not asked. Like it's always individual white people being like, but I'm not like those other white people, or I'm not like this white person, like this sort of individualism that comes with whiteness in a way that folks of color are often asked to speak on behalf of each other in our communities. To close this conversation, I wanna ask you one question. Yes.
0: What does Fairview do for American theater?
1: It's a big question. <laughs> um, I think what Fairview does for American theater is that it, it gives us an example of what theater could be. I think Drury is setting an example to um, producers everywhere, to, um, to young playwrights, to directors, about what theater can be. Like, what theater has the potential to do for folks. Fairview may not be the first to do this sort of project, but it is setting a tone that I think folks need to take up. What about you? What do you think? What I think
0: Fairview does for American theater, I think it puts American theater on notice. Mm. I think it interrogates American theater in a way... I'm not going to say a way that it's never been interrogated before, but in a way that it's, they cannot deny their part Mm -hmm. in white supremacy.
1: Yeah. Fairview is really
0: pushing us to think about how those white supremacist ideals are still in place and really put makers, creators, producers, theaters on the spot and saying, what are you going to do to dismantle this thing that you've you've helped create? Mm Mm-hmm. Please, please go see this play if it's showing anywhere that you are located. Mm-hmm. Read the play, buy the play at the Theater Communication Group, TCG. It's on sale. Support Jury's work. Mm-hmm. I'm so excited that Jordan and I Got to talk about Fairview today because it's a play that definitely has been on our minds both Mm -hmm. times we've talked about it, and we just can we continue to have conversations about it. And I think it's an important piece of theater. Absolutely. Before we get out of here, we're gonna do our suggested reading list. Mm -hmm. So this is just reading that if you were interested in any of the things that we talked about today, this is like I'm interested where can I go to learn more about surveillance? Where can I go to like read more plays like this? That's so right. this is just a little mini uh, suggested reading list that we came up with for the folks that are interested in reading more.
1: For some theoretical texts that if you're interested in those sort of things, definitely we want to highlight Simone Brown's Dark Matters on the Surveillance of Blackness, Friends Fanon's Black Skin, White Masks, Nicole Fleetwood's Troubling Vision.
0: Those are some theoretical texts. What about plays?
1: Um, why not A Troubling Mind by Alice Childress? I Don't Need to Show You No Stinking Badges by Louise Valdez. And I would say The Shipment
0: by Young Jean Lee. Mm. Go,
1: go, 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 go.
0: So that is our episode today. This has been Daughters of Lorraine. I'm Leticia Ridley.
1: And I'm Jordan Ely. Um, Stay tuned for episode two, where we will be discussing the uncovered history of lynching dramas.